take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 40, is the reading for this morning. This will be our last message taken from this chapter, and we continue on next Lord's Day, God willing, with Acts 17. Let us pray and then read. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love and adore you. You have done all things well. We thank you, O God and Father, for the gift of your Son, who has poured out the Spirit upon us. Lord, we thank you that your Spirit leads us into all truth. We thank you, Father, that even now it is our privilege to ask again, to seek again, to knock again for that which you have told us you are so eager and ready to give. You have filled our heart with hope upon this petition. Grant that your Holy Spirit would illuminate to our very heart and mind and will the beauty and truth of your word, that we would be formed and straightened by it, that we would be warmed and strengthened by it. To your pleasure, to the conforming of our very lives to the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Acts 16, verse 25. This is God's word. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he baptized, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. 
And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. God's word. Somewhere deep inside the Philippian jail, close to midnight, the Apostle Paul sees a reflection of light shining off a blade, a knife. A dagger has been drawn. A sword has been unsheathed. And whether Paul sees this blade with his physical eyes or with the eyes of a prophet does not matter. He sees it. From the inner prison where he is, he sees the jailer draw his blade and prepare to commit suicide. In the moments between seeing that blade and speaking the words he spoke, the air was pregnant with opportunity for Paul. If Paul had kept silent, hidden in the dark, he would have allowed a suicide to finish its course. Silence would have given birth to an easy escape for Paul and Silas. The jailer would be dead on the floor, lying in his own blood, murdered by his own hand, Paul and Silas walking out of their cell, stepping over the body, disappearing into the night. Opportunity for escape was in the air. But that was not the opportunity the apostles were seeking. Beloved, what opportunities are you seeking when men mistreat you, when men harm you, when you are beaten and thrown into a cell? What opportunities are you seeking from your sufferings? Now, this before us is not the first jailbreak to be recorded in the book of Acts. It is not even the second. It is the third. The first jailbreak was Acts chapter 5, back in Jerusalem, in the temple jail. Peter and the apostles had been arrested, and during the night, an angel of the Lord opened their prison doors and brought them out of the cell. The next day, when the temple authorities came to get them, the cell doors were closed and locked, and the guards were standing at attention, clueless about what had happened in the night. It was the quietest jailbreak recorded in history. There were no consequences even for temple guards. The second jailbreak, however, also involved Peter, recorded in Acts 12, not so peaceful, because this time it was inside Herod's own prison, inside the garrison. Deep in the night, an angel struck Peter awake, removed his chains, told him to get dressed, and led him out right past two guard sentries. The next day, after interviewing the guards, Herod ordered they should all be put to death, and they were. That's how godless rulers deal with failure in their grasp for power and control. Well, now we come to the third jailbreak. Now in Acts 16, we are again in a prison cell, not in Jerusalem. We are in Rome, or Roman territory, Philippi, and this cell again is occupied by the servants of the Most High King, Jesus Christ, who said, 
All authority on heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go and make disciples of all nations. And here are his servants again in prison. The great high king Jesus has an interest in making disciples in prison. That's why he puts his servants there. And the jailer who is present in this jailbreak knows very well the way of his Roman bosses. They will kill him with cruelty for letting a prisoner escape. They will torture him first to make sure that he is not a co-conspirator. Suicide is the easiest way out. So thinks the jailer, which means that very unlike Paul, very unlike Silas, who are also near to death, remember, beaten, stripped, not sure what the morning will bring, but unlike Paul and Silas, there is nothing inside the jailer that can rejoice and give thanks. The misery he is suddenly facing draws nothing good from his heart. He is an empty well. He has no prayers to pray, this jailer. He has no songs to sing. Dread, anguish, despair are all he has. As an employee of the state, he is surrounded by the many gods of Rome, by the customs of Rome, by the traditions of Rome, by the might and the majesty of Rome. He is surrounded by it. It has made his life. But when the prospect of being hated by the Roman Empire suddenly reaches his heart, the prospect of being rejected by the Roman Empire, there's no hope there. Because all he had been hoping in is about to reject him. But then something wonderful happens. As he is positioning the blade to pierce his own throat, He hears this loud voice crying out from deep inside the prison. A voice he recognizes because he's been listening to it all night, praying and singing. A loud voice cries out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. How could this be? How Could all the doors be open, yet no one has escaped? How could the prisoner whom he had treated so roughly earlier that night now want the jailer to live and not die? What has happened to the world? What twilight zone has the jailer fallen into? What brotherhood is this between jailers and prisoners? What goodness is this? What kindness is this? What hope is this? What divine power is this that fills and controls these two men who are singing and praying into the night? It is about this very moment as the jailer is calling for torches that he starts to put everything together. He's moving down a hallway to the inner cell, remember? Verse 24, 
or excuse me, verse 15, where they were locked up. He's moving down a hallway to the inner cell, and he's starting to put everything together that has been unfolding before his eyes and his ears that night. And as he puts it together, by God's grace, something deep within him, this jailer, begins to tremble with fear. Verse 29. The shaking of the earth has moved inside of the man. He is now trembling with fear. Here, by God's grace, is what the jailer put together. The two prisoners who had been praying and singing all night are the same ones now urging him not to harm himself. And they are the same two prisoners who have control over all the other prisoners, keeping everyone in their place. Though all the doors have been opened and all the bonds have come unfastened. Everyone is under the sway of these singing apostles. And they are the same two prisoners whose God has heard their prayers and praises, whose God has shaken the foundations of the prison with an earthquake, whose God clearly favors them and favors all their doctrine that has so upset the city of Philippi. The jailer's putting it all together. The jailer is coming to the conclusion that is so beautifully captured in a poem by Chesterton that the gods lie dead as a child comes forth alone. Child of Mary, the son of man, the son of God, who is on the right hand of the throne of God. The jailer's putting it all together with all the things he's heard in the songs, all the things he's heard in the prayers, all the things that he's heard in the town that got them locked up in the first place. He's putting it all together as he rushes into the cell of Paul and Silas and putting it together, a great fear cuts into his heart. A sword of a different kind pierces the division of his soul and spirit, Hebrews 4. He is suddenly naked, this jailer, and exposed, this jailer, to the one whom all must give an account, Hebrews 4. He realizes simultaneously that he is not hidden from this almighty God, but neither is he reconciled to this Jesus who rules all things and shakes the earth at will. Yet this same Jesus to whom they have been praying, to whom they have been singing, this same Jesus, he has also set put, poured so much love and joy and hope into the heart of his two servants. So now the jailer is trembling with fear. Not that lesser fear of what his Roman bosses might do to him, but the great fear of God. This is the fear of being exposed to the judgments of God of being brought close to the judgments of God and having no confidence of being right with God, of being reconciled to God, of being accepted by God. Now, this is something really to fear. This is something to fear. How many men, how many women, how many young people every week in this world 
are brought so very close to the judgments of God. They see the wrath of God in the storm. They feel the wrath of God under their feet in the earthquake. They fear the wrath of God in the car accident that takes five of their classmates. How many people have been brought close to the judgments of God but have not been struck with trembling fear by it, who have not felt the weight of it push them to the floor? This jailer is blessed. The weightiness of God, the kavod of God is upon him. He knows there is a God who is above all gods that the men and women of Rome worship. He knows that much at this point, and he knows he is not reconciled to God. This is something to fear. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. And destroy is not annihilate that you cease to exist. Destroy is to put in the worst condition that it can be in while still being a soul, still being a body. The Lord's wrath must do so to all his enemies. This is the weighty fear that has settled upon the jailer. It drives him to the floor, our text says. He fell down before Paul and Silas. He has discovered the great dread of God. Beloved, please, I I pray to God that you stay away from anyone who wants to keep men and women from this discovery. They are false prophets. It is the best thing a soul can experience outside of Christ to fall under the weight of discovering the great dread of God. The jailer now has discovered he cannot carry his soul and his body anywhere he pleases. He now is struck by a fear that even reveals his suicide to be useless in escaping the Almighty who has shaken the earth. He must answer to the God of Paul and Silas the God and Father of Jesus Christ, whom they praise. The God who shakes the earth also commands the soul either to heaven or to hell. But there is some ray of light here, isn't there? A glorious ray of light, a ray of light that's going to burst into a full dawn. There is some real and wonderful hope. Weren't these two men just yesterday preaching about salvation? Isn't that what the slave girl with the python spirit had been declaring about them? (coughs) Weren't these two men just earlier tonight even praying and singing to a savior? Aren't these two men themselves filled with joy and peace? So disinterested in suicide, though their prospects are worse than the jailer's? filled with joy and peace, even though they've been attacked and stripped and beaten. What do they have that I do not have, wonders the jailer. 
What do they know that I do not know? And so he asked the big question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Beloved, this is the great question we want the whole world to ask right there. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the great question for which all Christians can give the answer. Even the youngest of us. The question, what must I do to be saved? The answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We must learn to listen for this question. We really must. If people outside of religion are not talking about this question, then they are still far from understanding the true predicament that man is in. Their heart has not yet been opened and exposed to the judgments of God against their sin, if they're not talking about this big question. Man's true predicament is he needs to be saved from the wrath of God. Ephesians 2.3 says, All mankind, because of original sin, are, quote, children of wrath. As long as we are outside of Christ, we are under God's wrath. So if someone comes and does not want to speak of this question, they want to stay under a spell of falsehood. But if someone comes and asks this great question, Sir, what must I do to be saved? To ask this question means the veil between heaven and earth has been thinned and the weight of the Almighty God is upon them. They are not far from the kingdom. You see, they are undone. That's why they're asking. All their posing has finally been defeated. They no longer want to hide in the fantasy that they are okay, that there is no danger. They now know there is danger. They are in danger of God. And so they ask, what must I do to be saved? This question can be asked sincerely, even if it is not asked loudly. When our young people come to profess their faith and become communicant members of the church, they have asked this question for years as they've listened to the word of God, as they've attended upon baptism after baptism. They have improved their baptism by continually asking themselves, What must I do to be saved? And continually answering themselves, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they come to that day, our young people, where they are eager to profess the Savior's name as their only hope in facing the judgments of God, for he has borne the judgments of God for them. So those are a few words about people outside of religion. Now, if people involved in religion are not talking about this big question, then they are far from the kingdom of Jesus Christ, no matter how much they talk of religious things. They may talk about social justice, these religious people, or they may talk about human ethics, these religious people, Or they may talk about divine worship or church history or even about the family. 
but if they are not talking about the question of the jailer and the answer of the apostle, then all of their religion is something else to them than what it should be. Beloved, be suspicious of any clergyman who wants to talk about everything but about the salvation of sinners. He's a false prophet. Beloved, deception being what deception is, it is easy for religious sinful people to even make Christianity a system by which we manage the things we do not like about the world. For example, there are still people in this country who identify as Christian but do so for political reasons only. For people so deceived, their Christianity is not about the great question of verse 30. It is not about the great answer of verse 31. Their Christianity, in that case, is about making their life better in this world, and thus, though they are very religious, their Christianity is paganized. It's a paganization of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is all about Jesus Christ as Savior, the Savior of sinners. Look again at Paul's answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Surely Paul and Silas had many other things to say, They had many other things to teach to this jailer. Verse 32 says they did. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all in his house. Many, many questions had to be answered that night. Much instruction had to be given that night. But of all those other necessary and important things, there in verse 31 is where we find the deepest well of necessity, the highest summit of importance. The Holy Spirit did not record here all that could have been recorded, but he did record what must be recorded. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Jesus is in the business of salvation. He is zealous to save. Believe in him. To believe that Jesus is everything you need to be rescued from wrath and condemnation, believing that about Jesus is to be rescued from wrath and condemnation. You give to God the highest honor a creature can give to God by believing in Jesus as all your salvation. It is also the lowest honor that you give to sinful man, and that's honorable. It's honorable to give a low honor to sinful man, but you give sinful man the lowest honor, the right low honor by believing in Jesus. Why? Because believing Jesus is your all in all means your salvation is not found in anything you can do for Jesus. Paul does not tell the jailer, die for Jesus and you will be saved. Nor does Paul say, serve Jesus and you will be saved. Nor does Paul say, adore Jesus and you will be saved. Nor does Paul say, work hard for Jesus and you will be saved. He does not even say, sing to Jesus in prison and you will be saved. 
Paul says none of those things because those things would never be done and they would never be done the way they should be done and salvation can never follow as a reward for the undone efforts of sinful men. Instead, Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved because in the Lord Jesus, everything is already done. So, Salvation can be awarded as a gift on the merits of the one who has done everything that needed to be done. Jesus Christ. Our sin bearer. Our curse reverser. Our true groomsman, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. Who for us men and for our salvation. You see, it's right there in the Nicene Creed. It's so critical who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again for us with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Friend, if you have not already, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. He holds himself out to you today, for this very purpose. This is why you're here today. This is why all of the providences of heaven and earth have conspired to bring you to a chair in this room today so that God again would hold out to you the gift of his son and say, believe on him. Repudiate, reject everything that you could do and show full honor to what God has done in the work of his son. Now I have three points of application in closing. The first is the longest, the last two quite brief. <coughs> and they follow the text from top to bottom. Application number one. Beloved Christ uses your sufferings He uses your sufferings at the hands of sinful men to make him glorious to others. We must not think that the the praying and the singing at midnight in the prison cell had nothing to do with the calling of the jailer to salvation. Through the praying and the singing, the Lord was pre-evangelizing or maybe we can just say evangelizing, everyone in the place. The prisoners were listening. And that it was two who were praying. It means it had to be out loud. Silas needed to hear Paul. Paul needed to hear Silas. They sang psalms, and everybody listened. If it were one man, dismiss him as mad. Two men Now we have legal witnesses testifying to the same Savior, testifying to the same peace and hope 
that they go to their deaths not in dread, but in joy. What kind of men are mistreated by sinful men, and instead of being separated from their God, they are driven and cling to him all the more dearly, to the point of singing. What kind of men? These are men, these are vessels in whom Christ himself has poured grace. No, Christ himself has poured himself, and it comes to us as grace upon grace. Christ has poured himself into Paul, poured himself into Silas. He has poured his resurrection power into them, and they are not defeated by the mistreatment of evil men. They do not change what they want out of the world, what they want from their own lives. What they want is exactly what they are given from Christ at the right hand of heaven. They're given opportunity to testify to others the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ. That though the world is being torn from their hands, the life itself is being taken from them, they lose nothing because they have Jesus Christ. (coughs) It's wonderful how Paul's letters often align so perfectly with the events recorded in the book of Acts. Though Paul has been treated and mistreated in Philippi, he doesn't whitewash the treatment. He actually writes to the Thessalonians in his first letter to them, chapter 2, verse 2, we suffered and were, quote, shamefully treated at Philippi. Paul is a stickler for justice. He's not going to call it something else so that people think, that he's super spiritual. It was terrible. Which underscores the the remarkable weight of Christ's own presence in their hearts as they sang. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 6, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We might want to say, Paul, how can you say that to me? You don't know how I've been mistreated. Paul says, I know. I know that this is a world of mistreatment. And sometimes it feels like the whole world is a prison cell of mistreatment at the hands of sinful men and their sinful schemes and their wicked plans. But let it not silence your praise and joy. Because your head is seated in the heavens where nothing can tear him down. You have eternal life. You have a new heaven and a new earth promised to you. The new creation is already seated above. Beloved, let us learn from this that our sufferings at the hands of sinful men are to make Christ glorious to others as they see us who are filled now with Christ, not lashing out in anger and strife because we don't have the world we wanted. They instead see us rejoicing that in Christ we have everything we didn't deserve. Matthew Poole in the English annotations has a wonderful phrase about this text before us. 
singing apostles in prison. Quote, there is nothing more vain than violence or plotting against the truth of Christ. The more you labor to suppress it, the more it shines, it flourishes in its wound. It flourishes in the wound. Beloved, this is our great privilege, to be wounded by the hands of sinful men in this fallen, cursed world, just like our Savior was, and to praise God because nothing will, se- will separate us from God's love. Second point of application. You are saved by faith in Christ, but the Christ who saves you immediately binds you to his body. Verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The jailer wasn't left with his private confession of faith. He and his family were all added to the church that very night by the rite of initiation, baptism. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to be baptized, among many other things, to be baptized is to be marked and separated from all the unbaptized. It is to be separated from the world unto Christ, bearing the name of God in the washing of the waters of regeneration. It wasn't the jailer's idea. Hey, could we do a thing that I've been thinking about? No, it was Paul's idea. It was Christ's institution. He baptized them and marked them as belonging to the same church that Lydia had previously joined in that same town. You are saved by faith in Christ alone, but the Christ who saves you immediately binds you to his body and to his word and to his sacraments. If you are a Christian and you are not associated with a congregation of Jesus Christ, something is very wrong. And you might think, well, the wrong is not in me, it's in those Christians I know. But let's just start with that agreement. Something is very wrong. And if you are not happy with it being wrong because you love your Savior, then you should be asking everyone you know to pray for you to make what is wrong right. Last point of application from our text. You are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Beloved, we are not saved by our works. We are saved by Jesus Christ alone. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But that faith that saves, that faith that reaches out and lays hold of Christ, that same faith given by the Spirit of God, always follows with new works of the new life that we received in Christ. Look at our text. It is the jailer in verse 33 who washed the wounds of Paul and Silas. It is the jailer in verse 34 who brought them up into his house and set food before them. These are the good works that were ordained for this jailer and his wife before the foundations of the earth for them to walk in them, Ephesians 
saving faith is the same faith, not a different faith, than that faith that produces true obedience. It's not our obedience that saves us, but it always springs up once faith lays hold of Christ. And sometimes in your life, that, those good works will, will go down to a trickle. It will be such a trickle of good works, it will look like to a bypasser that the riverbed is dry. But because you have faith in Jesus Christ and he has taken possession of you, which is why you have faith, that bed will never go dry. Now, lastly, I must show you this. It's a bonus point. Who's rejoicing in verse 34? A man who was this close to being a suicide. A man who knew no joy. He has now joined Paul and Silas. Do you see it? And he rejoiced along with his entire household. He no longer thinks about his career as the ultimacy of whether his life is going well. He no longer thinks about whether he's going to be loved or not loved by his in-laws to determine if his life is going well. He no longer has his future hitched to the Roman Empire. Who knows if he'll have a job by the end of the week? Who knows if he'll have his head? But he is rejoicing. Why? Because he now possesses the very same Christ the Apostle Paul and Silas possess. And nothing can take that away from him. For it is Christ who possesses him and will not let go nor cause to perish any who have hoped in him. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we ask and pray that we would be freshly persuaded on the big question, what must I do to be saved? Lord, we thank you if that question is long settled in our lives. We pray that you would keep us fresh in its joy then. And Father, we pray that we would be ever more skilled and competent to help others who are groping in the dark bowing, expending great energy and and grief and fear even before the smallest questions of men. Help us, Lord. Help us as far as it is your pleasure and will to set before them the big question and give the simple, glorious answer. Oh, Lord, we thank you and we praise you that our Savior, Jesus Christ, does not abhor the prison cell, that he is not ashamed of his servants to be found stripped and beaten in a stinking, dark, dank place, lifting up his name. For he is the Christ of the cross. He is the one who became a curse for us. Lord, we thank you that it it is revealed here again to us today that Jesus, the Savior of sinners, the Lord and the King of heaven and earth, is saving men and women from all walks of life in all the darkest corners of the world. Lord, we pray that we would not, therefore, 
be proud or haughty or be blind ourselves, that we would be gracious to go to every soul that you are pleased to set before us and make to them the free offer of the gospel in some way, manner, or form, even if it comes first through our rejoicing in the midst of our mistreatment by other men. Oh, Lord, we pray that even that would be a testimony to the glory of Christ to others. We thank you for filling us with your dear Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dwelling in us with great power. Fill us to overflowing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.